The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media's either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they haven't sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the, the elephant, elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Welcome back to the Right Opinion Podcast right here on the therightopinion.podbean.com at Google Play and Stitcher and iTunes and hackerhomine.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com. I think I got all that good stuff out of the way. Be sure to follow me on social media if you haven't done so already. You can find us on Instagram, on Parler, and on Twitter at Right Opinion Pod. And uh, who am I, you may be asking. Well, I'm Harrison Bergeron. I'm your host here at The Right Opinion. And uh, yeah, you know, opinions are like assholes, but this asshole has got the right one, as I will remind you at the end of the show. But this week is a, it's an interesting episode of The Right Opinion. Uh, just kind of, my notes are entirely written on a one by two inch post-it note this week, which means not a lot of sources, not a lot of citing. Actually, it's going to be a lot of stuff that I've covered in the past, but I'm kind of grouping it all into what I'm now looking at as the erasure of history, and that is obviously going on all around us with the taking down of Confederate statues and statues even above and beyond that of the Confederacy, right? Like, okay, it's one thing if you've got issue with the Confederate statues. I sort of understand your plea. That said, I wish that you would, you know, elect people that would get rid of them the proper way rather than just going out there and tearing down the statues at your beck and whim. But that said... When you start tearing down statues of Ulysses S. Grant, who is not only a person who was gifted and freed a slave because he so adamantly was against slavery, but had actively fought against slavery, uh, had actively fought against the Confederacy, and even after that uh, was responsible for the 15th Amendment and had actively used troops to go ahead and combat the early days of the Ku Klux Klan. So, uh, I mean, you want to, I guess they're going to, ask to have him taken off the $50 bill next, not that any of these people have ever actually seen a $50 bill, but that's neither here nor there. Um, George Orwell is just somewhere screaming, I told you guys, I tried to warn you. And we do have some right-wing outlets that are out there, much like this one, that are talking about how the Democrats are trying to erase history. And one might ask themselves, why would they try to erase history? Well, that's probably because they don't have a very good part in it. They continue to talk about the right side of history, and uh, yet they seem to always be on the wrong side of it. Uh, I've got just a list of things here that basically the, the, the left is looking to rewrite the history of. And, uh, and they're doing everything from governmental action to um, obviously some of the big tech companies and some of the entertainment companies now censoring things um, all, all the way down to just your average Joe Schmo on Twitter and your average you know blogger on BuzzFeed or whatever the case may be. Um, trying to just tell you things are facts that are simply not so. And obviously, with all the riots going on right now, I'm just going to kind of work through this list and hope I get to everything. But let's talk about Michael Brown. Hands up, don't shoot, and all that nonsense. Turns out, Mr. Brown did not have his hands up 
did not say don't shoot. As a matter of fact, he was too busy punching a police officer through the open window of his vehicle and trying to wrestle his gun out of his holster, and it was ultimately deemed that the police officer was right in his actions as his life was most certainly being threatened by this man who was trying to take his firearm and had assaulted him through the window of his police vehicle. But to this very day, the lie is continued that Michael Brown was an innocent, unarmed black man who was shot just because that's just what police do in America, shoot unarmed black men for fun. When the statistics show you that that is simply not the case, even according to the Washington Post's own reporting, there was a grand total of nine unarmed black people shot by police officers last year, and I think I've mentioned this a few times, but even one of those had had a previous altercation where they were shooting at police and in this particular altercation told the police that he had a gun and that he was going to shoot them. So uh, can we knock it down to eight, maybe eight and a half for those, you know, supremely accurate statisticians out there? Eight and a half unarmed black people shot by the police in a single year. Are all eight of those deaths tragic? Probably. I don't know the, the finer details of every specific incident there, but we're talking about less than double digits in a, in a nation that has 330 million people, somewhere up in the neck of the woods of 40 million black people, and nine of which were shot unarmed by police. This is what these riots are about. It's, it's about those, it's not only about the notion that there is a, a variety of police officers out there shooting unarmed black men, because that obviously isn't based in reality, but it's also based on the notion of things like Michael Brown, where innocent black men are just shot. I mean, if you heard the original Michael Brown story, and you heard, here's this guy, he's black, here's this cop, he's white, cop's got, uh, cop's got his gun on him, uh, the the suspect has his hands up and says, don't shoot, and then the cop unloads a clip into him. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really bad. Unfortunately, for everybody out there who still believes that lie, it is precisely just that. It is a lie. It was it was never true. It was based on faulty eyewitness testimony, people who clearly wanted to make this out to be a bigger deal than it actually was, people who saw people very much like that guy in the Rayshard Brooks um, civilian footage where he's screaming, "What? why did you shoot him? He did nothing wrong. These people, whoever they may be, regardless of what color they are or gender they may identify as, these, these folks are in the moment and they're seeing something that they believed to be an injustice, not knowing the full scope of the information, and they are imagining things. That is quite literally what happened there with both the people that suggested that Michael Brown had his hands up and said don't shoot, and that asshole in that Wendy's parking lot who was yelling at the cop for defending his own life and the life of his partner, and for that matter, the life of everybody in and around that general Wendy's in the Atlanta area. So, the that, look, I, I don't think a lot of these folks come at it from the perspective of, I'm going to lie about this. I'm going to exacerbate this problem. But they do come from it, uh, come at it from a perspective of, I see an injustice here. And because it's an injustice, I'm justified in doing anything that I can and am willing to do in order to correct that injustice. So if that means I got to tell a little white lie about a little white cop shooting a black man, well, guess what? That's the lie I'm going to tell. And they think that they are justified in doing so because they are, after all, correcting a wrong that they think is some sort of systemic problem, although there seems to be no such systemic problem. Again, take a look at the numbers. And yes, there are a fair amount of white people killed by police every year, twice as many as, in fact. And yeah, I know there's about five times as many white people 
in the United States as there are black people. Uh, mind you, all of these all of these statistics can really be hammered down to just men. It turns out women don't actually commit a ton of violent crime. But at the end of the day, it still divides evenly. There's still five times as many white men as there are black men. And twice as many white men are shot by police. And the reason that it's not five times as many white people are, are shot and killed by police every year is frankly because white people just don't have nearly as many interactions with police. Now, a lot of people will tell you that that's because of over-policing in these particular neighborhoods when, I mean, look at the neighborhoods that we're talking about here. New York, Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit. There's a lot of violence that still goes on in those neighborhoods. If, if you're suggesting that we are over-policing those neighborhoods, I'm suggesting to you that we are still not policing them enough, particularly downtown Chicago. And now, for that matter, in New York, they have gotten rid of plainclothes police officers in an attempt to you know, try to provide some transparency to the policing. Well, there are a number of shootings that have gone on since that particular policy was implemented, and it's probably because now the people who are out there shooting people are not worried that one of the people in that given crowd or in that given area might be a police officer because now the police officers have to show up wearing uniforms, which kind of gives them away. So that's Michael Brown and that whole nonsense. And the and the nonsense that there is this epidemic this plague of black people getting killed by police officers, white police officers in particular. And by the way, in the Washington Post statistics, they don't often tell you what color the police officer was. There's a lot of studies that will show, that will show you that in areas where they have police forces that have a large group of minorities and they're able to kind of weigh the minority police versus the white police, the white police end up being less likely to use their gun in a situation against a person of color because of precisely what's going on with uh, with Garrett Rolfe down in Atlanta right now. The guy was 100% within his right to do everything that he did there. It's unfortunate that Mr. Brooks made the decisions that he made, but those decisions cost Mr. Brooks his life, and they damn sure should not have cost Officer Rolfe his life, and he acted accordingly. Now he's been fired, suspended, uh, or he's been fired, and he's going to potentially be charged with felony murder, a charge that I hope any judge with good conscience just simply, simply laughs out of their courtroom. But getting back to my original point is that even in police forces where there are a lot of minorities, in particular New York City, where the police force is a majority minority, meaning that most of the police are not white, there are still a greater proportion of people of color that are pulled over in New York, even by those police. Maybe it's instead of just assuming that there's a bias on, on behalf of the police, maybe at a certain point we start to call into question the decision-making of the people who are repeatedly interacting with the police, because as somebody who's relatively law-abiding, albeit I am white, I don't have a ton of interaction with police. My registration's up in my car, I don't, you know, speed, I don't steal stuff, I don't attack people, I don't, you know, all anything that would lead to me interacting with police, I don't do those things. And crazy enough, I don't have a lot of interactions with police. Maybe if we applied that logic to some of the people that do have frequent contact with the police, we could start to see why they have such problems with the police. Moving on from there, the 1619 Project. This is a big one. So for those of you unaware of this, God bless you. That means you've been ignoring the papers of the New York Times and most of Twitter for the last couple of years, and that's probably for the better. But the 1619 Project is an asinine rewriting of history, and that is precisely what it is and, frankly, doesn't make any claims to the contrary. It is a rewriting of history that reestablishes the beginning of America 
not in 1776 when we declared our independence from the British Empire, but in 1619 when we first arrived on this continent as a people, I suppose. That's like really when Jamestown was was settled. And uh, obviously the slave trade began here in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, the idea behind the, the 1619 Project is not that America was this great place that ultimately led to the freedom for all that we have today, which we most certainly do, despite the fact that you'll be told otherwise on social media and from the mainstream media. It is the idea that in 1619, the beginning of the American experiment started with the expressed and explicit purpose of, of building up and maintaining slavery in this particular hemisphere. This, of course, could not be any further from the truth, but even if you wanted to make the case that there is some element of truth to it, um, you would have to, of course, compare that to some of the things that we've seen since 1619. Now, obviously, slavery existed up until 1865 here in the United States, but even as early back as 1776, you know, the actual founding of America, there were fervent debates in the Continental Congress about the abolition of slavery back then. The reason that slavery wasn't abolished at that time was really just to keep the Union together. We needed to keep the 13 colonies together so that we can all combat uh, Britain and the immeasurable military might that they had the ability to dump down upon us. And so we needed all 13 colonies on the same page. Some of those 13 colonies were particularly fond of slavery. And in order to keep them in the group, we needed to capitulate to them for a period of time. But you will also remember that the same folks involved in the Continental Congress, many of them were involved in the drafting of the Declaration of Independence. And that brings me to Joe Biden's favorite line, which is, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, yes, um, modern-day sexist standards notwithstanding, you will notice that that does not exclude anyone. It does not say all men, white men, all, all men, just men, all men, and, uh, and, and certain men. No, no, all men, all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They did mean that for all men, even back then, despite the fact that slavery continued in this country for close to another 90 years after the fact. But the idea was there, that America is going to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that includes everybody, including those that were enslaved at the time. Our founding fathers knew this, even though many of them owned slaves themselves. And again, there's, there's a chronological moral relativism that people need to apply to these things. Slavery was rampant all across the world. Slavery was something that had been part of the American uh, continent, I suppose, since its very beginnings of exploration when we first sent people over here. And like I said, settled Jamestown and all that sort of stuff. So at the time, yes, while it should have been patently obvious to these people that slavery was an evil thing and that shouldn't be conducted, it was also not as evil then as it is today. And I'm not making any excuses for anybody who ever held slaves. Frankly, I think it's disgusting. But to apply the morals of 2020 to the morals of 1820 is just laughable. That it, There are so many things that were 
considered uncouth today that were not back then. I mean, people were getting married at 13 back in the day. That would be considered rather uncouth today, which is not to suggest that being married at 13 is in any way, shape, or form like being enslaved, although there are a few husbands out there that might tell you otherwise. That said, the idea that the 1619 Project is now celebrating the the 401st, I guess, year of the American founding, even though we're really only at around 240-something years since the American founding. Uh, They have added on all of that period of time before 1776 to really hammer home that a majority of our existence has been developed around slavery, when, if you look at things from 1776 to the current day, well, slavery only really existed for about 90 of those years, and we are going on about 244 of those years, which would mean that far more of our history had no slavery than had slavery, and they don't want you to know that, because once you start putting that into perspective and realizing that America is really not all that founded on slavery as much as slavery was just something that existed when it was founded. And and for that matter, there was many things that were going on in and around particularly the latter days of slavery that were detrimental to the South, and that was ultimately what led to their defeat in a number of ways, in that by having slaves, there was no need for innovation. They weren't particularly interested in making their slaves' lives easier or more efficient. They were just willing to beat them until they were producing at the level that they needed them to produce. But in the North, they were innovating because they didn't have slaves, and they needed to find easier, more efficient ways for the people who worked in the factories and people who worked in what in, on the farms and the variety of different places that they would end up working from that point forward. Um, they needed people there to have a more efficient means of getting the job done. And as a result, the North inevitably grew economically much faster than the South because, again, the South was continuing the same practices that they had since 1619, presumably. But the 1619 Project, the again, the idea that America was built on the foundation that we wanted slavery here and that it was designed pretty much explicitly for the purposes of, of, of maintaining and expanding the slave trade is just simply nonsense. Might there have been some people who thought that along the way? Sure, there's, there's probably plenty of those. But if you, can, if you could do some research on your own, I actually was doing this a couple of weeks ago and unfortunately didn't take a few screen caps, but you will notice that if you, if you look at when slavery was ended in countries around the world, the United States you know, ended slavery long before Many, many other countries, particularly European countries, um, but countries all around the world were continuing the slave trade long after 1865. The United States fought an incredibly brutal, incredible, incredibly bloody war in order to end slavery. And then we had, of course, Abraham Lincoln, Republican president, who wrote the Emancipation Proclamation and obviously went on to free the slaves, and then the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment brought the slaves at least as far as certain rights go up, you know, several steps in the social classes. And then, of course, Jim Crow kind of kept them weighed down for a long time, another Democrat policy, until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was ultimately signed, which did not, of course, waive all problems for black people in this country, but certainly eliminated a large chunk of the systemic problems that people today claim still exist, even though this law has been in place for over 50 years now. But the systemic racism still exists, which is really just the left's way of casting this 
overly broad net over everything and everybody because they can't give you specifics because if they were to give you specifics, they would reveal that uh, the specific instances that they are talking about are instances that everybody has a problem with, like Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd in the middle of broad daylight in the middle of Minneapolis. We all recognize that as a bad thing. And that's the funny thing about this, is that these these cases that are out there, the Michael Browns, the Tamir Rices, the Brianna Taylors, the um, the George Floyds of the world. There's a reason that you can name all of their names, and that's because these stories become such big stories that these people become household names. And that's because we don't live in a racist country, and when we see open, outright racism being conducted from people who are in positions of power, we always, virtually always, come together as a people, as a country, as a, as a society, and say that was bad. And the problem is, is for the Black Lives Matter crew, is that there are not a lot of examples out there where where there was an objective problem and everyone wasn't on board with pointing out that there was an objective problem. The Breonna Taylor case, there's some nuance there. She was probably dating a drug dealer and enough to and, and possibly even helping him traffic drugs, which is how police get a no-knock warrant to go into your house at two in the morning to raid you. Um, with the case of Rashard Brooks or Rashard Brooks in Wendy's parking lot down in uh, in Atlanta. We all saw the videotape there. The police officers gave him every opportunity to comply, and when he didn't, he turned violent, and that violence ultimately led to his end. That went down exactly the way it should have gone down in accordance with anybody I've ever spoken to or anyone I've ever heard who's had even a semblance of police training. But nevertheless, we are supposed to believe that there was this innocent black man gunned down by a white police officer in a Wendy's parking lot. And and for some reason, people just buy the lie without looking into it any further. This is all a continuance of the same rewriting of history that we've been doing since that I've been talking about since the beginning of this episode, which brings me to Gone with the Wind. HBO Max got rid of Gone with the Wind because obviously it's a time, you know, it's a, it's a piece that, that takes place in time. And that time was not a particularly good one for people of color in the United States. I think really what grinds their gears about it is that is it is still one of the most popular movies and widely acclaimed as one of the greatest movies ever created by American cinema. But more importantly than all of that is that the first black woman who ever won an Oscar won it for their award won it for their their role in that movie and now we want to erase that movie from history because you know because the 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 fiction that is taking place within the movie which is what it is it is a work of fiction it is based on certain levels of reality and based on a time where reality wasn't so great again for people of color but how far do we take this do we now get rid of every movie that that was made or set between you know before 1964 or maybe even 2008 or whatever, whenever line you want to draw for when America didn't become racist, many of which don't believe to this day that we are not. They, they still believe America is this unbelievably racist nation. Um, also, that the, the and this is the great irony here, is that the system is racist. Well, the system in a majority of these cities that are being burned down to the ground right now is a system run by, not only run by Democrats, but has been run by Democrats for the better part of the last century. Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, Los Angeles, New York City. These are places that have historically been run by almost exclusively Democrats. They have Democrat AGs. They have Democrat governors that override the mayors. They have all of the parts of the system that are so racist 
all happen to be run by Democrats, which begs the question, at what point do these protesters realize that and start pointing their finger in the direction of the people that are causing the problem for them? And and the sad part about this is, and I've heard a lot of uh, black political commentators talk about this, is that a lot of these people get into these positions of power. They use their race to get into the positions of power. I'm black, and you're black, and you're struggling. Put me in power. I'll help you. And then these people get sucked up into the political swamp just like everybody else, and they're making money, and the city is worse off than it ever was before. A lot of these places are calling for more funding for schooling when there's you know, for instance, Detroit, they spend $15,000 per student in the public school system. That's well above the average for the rest of the nation, and yet the Detroit school systems continue to get worse and worse. It's almost as if this is not a problem that you could simply throw money at. You need to have actual leadership in places there. And they talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. Well, that school-to-prison pipeline, if it at all exists, exists because they are not these, these students are not learning in school that there are certain things that you need to do in order to ensure that you have a good life. Get married, then have kids. Graduate from high school. Don't commit a crime. You know, keep your job, get a job and keep a job. These are all things that you can do, that you have control of, that no one else really has any control over you or has any ability to prevent you. Sure, your one boss might be racist. Go to another job, get another job, keep that job, get married, then have kids, graduate from high school, don't commit crimes, and you are virtually guaranteed to not be impoverished in this country is the beauty of not only the capitalist system that we have, but of the melting pot in the anti-racial society that we have here, is that most people don't care at the end of the day whether you're white, black, brown, or blue, or purple. If you can help them, they are happy to employ you. No one is looking at somebody going, oh, you know, I really need a really need a software engineer, but I really don't want to hire that black guy, even though he does a way better job than that white guy over there. People don't do that. And the people that do do that, their businesses ultimately fail because they're more worried about things that have nothing to do with performance, which is what we're seeing in a lot of cases, even in the big entertainment industries right now is, you know, even the Disney's of the world albeit they're certainly not hurting for money, but if they actually went out, you know, instead of going out of their way to gender bend and race bend characters and all that sort of stuff, if they just found the best person for the role, which they may have in a lot of these cases, like, look, I, I always take shots at the fact that there are black Asgardians in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Idris Elba and Tessa Thompson. Two of them, the two of them are some of the best actor and or actresses out in the world today, as far as I'm concerned, I enjoy everything that they're always involved in, but we are also talking about Norse mythology here, and there's frankly nothing whiter than North, Norse mythology, so to have Tessa Thompson and Idris Elba playing Norse characters seems a little off. Now, did it take away from the movie for me personally? No, again, I enjoy their acting, I think it's great, but Disney seems to go out of their way to try to recast characters that have been historically white. They'll never do it the other way around or to recast characters as female that were historically male. Again, they'll never do it the other way around, but they're so insistent on being woke that they will inevitably, it will take some time, but inevitably they will go broke as we're seeing with things like the NFL and other sports and other forms of entertainment is that there is a there is a push for political correctness and diversity and uh, and representation that ignores all of the other elements that are supposed to go into putting together a good production or a good product, which is like the best possible performance or the best possible actor for a given role or the best way of framing this character so that they speak to everybody as opposed to this one niche 
group that you're looking to uh, to appease here at the expense of potentially pissing off others. We all saw what happened with Brie Larson when she was bitching about white men interviewing her. That movie, while it did make a billion dollars, largely because it was kind of shoehorned in between the two biggest movies Marvel had ever made and kind of positioned as appointment viewing where you needed to see it. Um, it did make a billion dollars, but there was a lot of media lashback about those comments because a lot of fans of the Marvel Cinematic Movies happen to be white men, and they don't want to be talked down to by somebody who is not only going to be part of the franchise, but positioned as potentially a cornerstone of it moving forward. Not a great start there, uh, but nevertheless, Brie Larson will stick around because, well, she's just woke enough for Disney to never get rid of her. And uh, and she did an okay job as Captain Marvel. Frankly, I was not uh, all that upset by it. Not nearly as upset as I was by the marketing, which was just uber and unnecessarily feminist. And then obviously her stupid comments that she made uh, along the press route there. Uh, so Gone with the Wind, that was next. Uh, the party switch. This one is always a favorite of mine. The idea that the parties switched, right? Because now they're pulling down Confederate statues, but then they're pulling down Grant statues. They're pulling down all these other statues here. Let me just break down real quick this whole notion of the party switch as if I haven't done it a few times already. But just keep in mind that this is an all, again, an Orwellian rewriting of history to fit a particular narrative. That narrative, of course, being the leftist slash liberal slash Marxist mainstream media Chinese catering fucking narrative out there, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the CBS Newses of the world that really have no interest in truth so much as they have interest in their truth, which couldn't be further from the actual truth. So the idea that the parties switched, first and foremost, sort of laughable on his face, right? Like, I mean, just think about the party switched. Does that mean that Every Democrat woke up one morning and was like, oh, I'm a Republican now. I definitely don't believe in any of the things I believed up to this point. I, I, I totally get it. Blacks are actually pretty cool people. Um, no one actually believes that. Same thing goes with the Republicans, as if the Republicans, the party of freeing the slaves, just woke up one day and were like, eh, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have done that. The, and, and the idea that this happened on a national scale, seemingly overnight, is even more laughable. But let's break down exactly what they're talking about. So they're pointing to... In the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, Nixon was on the Southern strategy where he was out to try to get a lot of the votes in the South that he felt were up for grabs because there was a bit of, um, there was a bit of a of kind of a, a a schism that went on in the South. There, you had the more traditional Democrats, the Andrew Jackson Democrats, and then you had the Dixiecrats, the people that were kind of left over from the Confederacy and were still pushing for segregation at every given turn, and George Wallace ran for president as like a third party under the Dixiecrats and got a lot of votes, and then Nixon ultimately said, you know what, I think I can get some of those people, and he started actually, you know, pushing campaigns into the South, which was something that this, that Republicans just simply hadn't done up to this point. Now, I, it, it on a certain level is sort of brilliant from Nixon in that he was right. He was ultimately correct in that there were people in the South that were willing to listen to the Republican platform. That said, the shift in the votes, as it were, well, let's start back in the 1930s. So the black vote had been historically Republican since the Emancipation Proclamation because they recognized that the Republicans were the party that freed them and they felt loyal to them, and probably rightfully so. It wasn't until the 1930s and FDR's uh, New Deal, I almost called it the Green New Deal, that's coming down the pike whether we like it or not, um, don't vote for Joe Biden, kids, otherwise we're going to have a Green New Deal. But the New Deal gave away a lot of stuff. It, it opened up the door to a lot of entitlement programs, a lot of government handouts, and, it, to, you know, in 
to to sympathize with the black voters of the time a little bit. You know, they were freed, yes. They were still treated pretty shitty. They were promised 40 acres and a mule they never got. And here's FDR. He's giving shit away. Yeah, okay, I can see why they would latch on to FDR is that finally somebody's giving them something for all of the hardship that they've under that, that they underwent. That said, it was about 60, 70 years after the fact, and uh, and for that matter, he wasn't specifically giving things away just to people of color. He was giving away kind of things to everybody. Social Security was founded during this sort of time, yada, yada, yada. Um, so the black vote did shift in the 30s from Republican to Democrat. Now, when did the, when did the racist Southerners suddenly become Republicans? Um, that is a question that actually didn't fully, and I, I say racist tongue-in-cheek because I don't think that the Southerners are racist. As a matter of fact, as the South has gotten less racist, which we could certainly say they were the most racist during slavery, they were probably less racist but still racist during the era of Jim Crow, and then it wasn't until Jim Crow went away that the South started to become more Republican because they were becoming less racist. And it wasn't until Reagan in the 80s that the South really hit that stride and really became red in the way that we know it today. Now, why was that? It certainly wasn't because Reagan was pushing racist segregationist policies in the 80s. No, we were long past that at this point. He was pushing guns, pro-guns, pro-religion, pro-military, patriotism, all of these sorts of things actually, you know, hit home with a lot of the Southerners in the South because that's where Southerners are. Uh, But nevertheless, Reagan was able to fully win those votes over and keep the South red in the way that it is. Again, the South, as it got less racist, and it most certainly was less racist in the 1980s than it was in the 1880s, and for that matter, the 1780s, as it got less racist, it got more Republican. Furthermore, another big chunk of evidence that I always like to throw out there is that if the party switched in the 60s, 70s, whatever it is, late 60s. If this happened the way that the media tells you it happened, then why is the leftist base today so in love with FDR and the New Deal? Heck, they named their new New Deal after the old New Deal. They just added a color to it. It's the Green New Deal because everything's about color with these people. Make no mistake about it. They're the ones that call you a racist, but they're the ones that cannot see anything other than race, presumably. Furthermore, Bernie Sanders' entire presidential platform was basically FDR's second Bill of Rights, which he was trying to push back in the 30s, um, which is before the 60s. So it would be really weird if the party switched, and yet the parties today are still supporting members from their same party back in the 30s, right? I mean, I don't know, call me crazy. But the idea that the party switched is just another example of revisionist history and bad revisionist history at that. They don't really have much of a leg to stand on. Also, another thing that Dinesh D'Souza always points out when he talks about this particular issue is if the party switched, then you would imagine that there would be like a lot of people that jump from one party to the other. When in fact, there was only two members of Congress that physically jumped parties. Uh, Strom Thurmond was one. And there was a member from the House of Representatives as well, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. But yes, people did jump ship, all two of them. So uh, to suggest that these two people are indicative of some large swing that occurred that where both parties basically just swapped platforms as if that makes any sense, which it doesn't. 
And if it if you just think about it for more than five seconds, it doesn't make any sense. But people out there are convinced this is true, and that's why when you point out to them that the Democrats were the party of slavery, they were the party of the Klan, they were the party of Jim Crow, they go, oh no, the party switched, don't you know? And just just I want you to just take your hands, put them on your hips, tilt your head sideways, and look at them and go, really? Really? How does that work? And let them explain it to you. And then you can explain to them what I just explained to you. And hopefully, at least one of you will walk out of there with more information than you had. And it will, in all likelihood, be them. But let's get to the next thing on the list here, the Confederate statues. Yeah, like I, I kind of opened with this, and, I, and I'll elaborate on this a little bit more. Because I heard a really good interview uh, with Wilfred Riley. He was on the Daily Daily Caller podcast with, uh, with semi-friend of the show, Derek Hunter. And... Uh, Derek was was talking to uh, to to Riley about this particular issue, and he was talking about, you know, it's all well and good that you want to take down the Confederate statues, kind of like I talked about at the beginning. I I can sympathize with black people not wanting to walk past the statue of a guy who who fought to keep slaves. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. What I do want to see though is instead of rabid mobs pulling these statues down and injuring themselves in the process sometimes, which is sort of hilarious. By the way, Popular Mechanics uh, actually put out an article about how to properly rip down statues without getting injured because wokeness, I suppose. But Riley talks about, okay, so the Confederate statues are one thing, but now we're getting into Cervantes, the guy who wrote Don Quixote, who was a slave, by the way. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who fought to end slavery and freed uh, the only slave he ever had. Um, But how long until not only is it the Confederate statues and now all of these other people have gotten lumped in. President Trump said a long time ago, he's like, how about, you know, how long until George Washington and Thomas Jefferson statues are being torn down? And that's happening, too. People are talking about tearing down the Washington Monument or tearing down the Lincoln Memorial. They tore down a Abraham Lincoln statue in the United Kingdom. Not to suggest that they should be very fine-tuned on American history, but I would think that if you were angry enough about Abraham Lincoln to tear down his statue, you are so woefully ignorant about what that man stood for. It's not even worth discussing. But thankfully, we haven't quite got that far here yet, although there are now calls to blow up Mount Rushmore. Literally, blow it up. Um, I hope that that doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, I believe the president is going to be at Mount Rushmore on July 4th this year, so I really hope that that doesn't culminate in some sort of big, scary event, and uh, hopefully the Secret Service is on their toes knowing that that might be a possibility. But how long until JFK and MLK are canceled? I know you're thinking to yourself, what did they do? Well, I mean, neither one of them were particularly good with women. I mean, they would have been me too faster than Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey if they were alive today. That said, they also, you know, they also ate uh, mass farm-produced meats and, uh, you know, all this other stuff that isn't considered super woke today. So I I worry about, you know, I worry about all of our history getting erased because even the bad parts of history we need to be reminded of. Otherwise, we are doomed to repeat them. This is something that I feel like everyone learned in their second-grade history class, but apparently these fools slept through it, which would explain why they know so little about history, I suppose. But I think that these people are— I don't even know that they have any idea why they're doing what they're doing. I think they're just rage-filled losers, uh, for lack of a better term. They have finally emerged from their mother's basement after months of being unemployed 
And frankly, by the looks of them, many of them are unemployable to begin with, so this may be going on years in some of their cases. And they're just looking for ways to enact their rage. But the media is just going along with it and applauding them for doing all this nonsense, which is just, it, it, it is just that. I, I feel like I use that word a lot, but unfortunately, when you deal with the left, you deal with a lot of nonsense. And the idea that we could just go willy-nilly tearing down statues, again, I don't care if you have a problem with a particular statue being in your town. What I would like you to do is go about it the right way. Petition the mayor, run for mayor, run on a platform of tearing down these statues. Um, get enough people behind you to where the mayor can't silence you anymore, and maybe they will capitulate. Even even we're seeing now, there are towns across America that are canceling holidays and getting rid of statues based on very small petitions signed by very, very small percentages of the town, but they get it, and they don't want to be canceled, so they, they will go ahead and capitulate to those groups, even though they probably shouldn't because the majority of their constituents don't fall in line with that particular ideology. But hey, I'd much rather you put together a petition than just take it upon yourselves to pull down a statue that you didn't pay for that the rest of us did. One of the statues they want to tear down is the statue of Lincoln, the great emancipator statue, a statue paid for by freed slaves, by the way, to commemorate Abraham Lincoln for doing what he did. But no, none of that means anything to this radical mob of leftists, and uh, unfortunately, BLM is as little as, uh, 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 all right, let me restart that. Black Lives Matter, yes. Black Lives Matter, the organization, couldn't matter any less to me, but unfortunately for them, the handful of people in that organization that are true of heart and just want to see some change, those people are being overshadowed by the people who run the organization, and for that matter, the uh, the white liberal you know, attack dogs that they have known as Antifa, the two of them very much in the same bed together, which is all very weird. Um, what is it? The woman who uh, I think Patrice Coulars is the name of her, is her name. She runs uh, BLM. She was one of the founders of it. It was recently discovered that she claims to be a trained Marxist, which is which is just weird because, you know, Marxism has historically disenfranchised and outright murdered millions of people of color all across the world whenever it's implemented at any given turn. The uh, the minority communities are typically the first ones to get oppressed, if not altogether, again, murdered by Marxist and communist regimes, yet this idiot is running BLM under the guise of Marxism as if that will end well for her people if it is ever actually implemented. It's when I see stuff like this that it's hard not to be a conspiracy theorist, because let's face it, those two ideologies don't really mix. There needs to be a reason as to why they seem to mix right now, and I'm led to believe that that's because of, you know, big funding from, you know, the George Soros types of the world that are organizing these groups to ultimately, you know, destroy America, and, and for that matter, freedom, individual freedom all across the world. As we've seen, the BLM protests were not exclusive to the United States. My favorite one is in the UK, where everybody is is taking a knee to uh, to commemorate the black lives lost at the hands of UK police. UK police, by the way, don't even have guns like 99.9% of the time. But the only person killed by police of color last year in 2019 happened to be the London Bridge terrorist. So, yeah, we got the nine unarmed black people shot and killed by police here. They had one, and he wasn't unarmed. He was an actual terrorist. But he was the only person of color killed by police in 2019, yet you have an entire country of people taking knees to commemorate the loss of a terrorist, which seems rather interesting. But, oh man, just the dumbest fuckery that is going on out there, it may never end.
Uh, let's move on to the Camden Police. This is another rewriting of history, is that the suggestion that the Camden Police defunded and, uh, and now crime has gone down in Camden. Well, the Camden Police Force did have 250 police officers on the force when they got rid of a lot of them and replaced them with county employees at a much lower cost per officer and as a way to skirt around the police unions because now they are union employees as opposed to uh, they, are, they are county government employees as opposed to union employees so they don't have nearly the protections and the bargaining power that they would have otherwise had. And in doing so, by lowering the cost of officer, they were actually able to increase their police force. So you're being told that Camden defunded the police and that they cut down the police force. This is woefully incorrect. They went from 250 police officers to 410 police officers, all the while making it a less diverse police department because most of the people that were hired from the county happened to be white. So now we have a less diverse, larger police force. And the one bit of truth in all this is that crime has come down in Camden, New Jersey. So they will tell you that it is because the police were defunded and, and essentially disbanded that Camden got their uh, their act together down there and that the police are finally doing their jobs. The reality of the situation, of course, is that they increased the police force. They made it less diverse, which I don't believe was their goal, but just so happened to work out that way. Now, they did do, they did take some measures that I think are good in that when you get assigned to a particular area in Camden, as a new officer, you are required to go around and knock on doors and introduce yourself to the people that you will be protecting and serving. I think this is a great idea. This is something that should be done in all country, in all counties, and in all states across the country, particularly in high-crime minority areas where, obviously, there is a lack of trust in the police for some reason. Well, what better way to start breaking down that wall than to build a bridge, right? Well, the police officers now are going door-to-door, -door, introducing themselves and making their, their presence known to the people of these communities and putting a face to the name and a face to the badge. And hopefully, if any of these folks are in trouble, they know that they can rely on that police officer to protect and serve them because that's their job description, not to shoot them because they're an unarmed black person, which is most certainly not what's being done in a vast, 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 vast majority of cases, meaning like 99.99999 something percent of cases. So the Camden police lie, yet another laughable rewriting of history. Um, what else do we have here? A couple other things. Um, the exploiting of kids. This is another fun one. So there was obviously the, uh, the fake CNN news clip that was circulated by President Trump of the young black kid and the young white kid and them giving each other a hug. And it, it was all kind of cut together to make it look like CNN was covering it as if this was a white supremacist baby chasing down a innocent unarmed black baby and yada, yada, yada. It was funny. It was supposed to be proving a point about how CNN doesn't tell you the whole story. And they don't more times than not. But there was a lot of people out there that seemed to be rather perturbed that Donald Trump was exploiting children for, to make a political message. And man, all I got to ask is, where were these people when Greta Thunberg was being pushed down our throat? Or Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg were being pushed down our throat? Or when 26 kids from Sandy Hook Elementary sang at the Super Bowl? Where were these people to ask why we are exploiting children? It's hilarious that the left, oh, in the, let's not forget in the Sunrise Movement, uh, the, the classroom full of elementary schoolers that stormed into Dianne Feinstein's office. Dianne Feinstein, not my favorite congressperson, as you might imagine, but I still felt pretty bad for her having to deal 
with this know-it-all teacher and these kids who have been, you know, just brainwashed by said know-it-all teacher. Where were the, oh my God, don't exploit kids for a political message people when that was all going on? But no, these two children who are too young to even probably know that they are in this video and probably will be We'll, we'll forget that this ever was a thing by the time they've reached adulthood, if they haven't already. I don't even know how old that video was that was clipped up. But it is just hilarious that the left, who constantly pushes children in front of a microphone to make their political points in hopes that we won't attack them because they know for damn sure we will attack the adults because the adults should know better. But the kids get pushed out in front of the cameras, the David Hoggs, the Greta Thunbergs, the Sandy Hook Elementary kids, the Sunrise Movement kids. They get pushed out in front of a mic in front of a microphone to project the liberal talking points because the liberal talking points are so insanely stupid that if you were any rational-minded adult, you could pick them apart relatively quickly. But should you do that to a child, now you're attacking children. See how this all works now? So when Trump does it, and he didn't even really use these kids. He was It was a video clipped together by somebody else that he retweeted to expose the idea that CNN isn't always telling you the full story. Funny enough, though, I will, to CNN's credit, not that I want to give it to them, is that that was an actual story that CNN covered, and they did cover it correctly at the time. But uh, Carpe Duncum just used that. He's the guy who put together the meme. He, he used that particular clip as evidence of, or a, not even an example or evidence of, but just as a, as a uh, as, as sort of a straw man, I guess, of what CNN does more typically, which is give you a sliver of the truth, and then they fill in the rest with their bullshit. Meanwhile, if you just got the whole story, you may very well look at the whole story very differently than CNN wants you to, and that is by design. Um, last but not least, the scandal-free presidency of Barack Obama. I've talked about this on a myriad of occasions as well, but they continue to push this. And I think it's important not because I want to attack Barack Obama, but because of the guy who was sitting at his right hand the entire time all of this was going on. Yes, of course. I mean, sleepy, creepy, flippy, floppy, sloppy Joe. Malarkey Joe in some circles. Lunch bucket Joe. Uh, or corn pop, depending on how you want to refer to him. But Barack Obama was obviously not a scandal-free president. He used the IRS to target conservative 501c3s. He sold um, firearms to Mexican drug cartels. He allowed Hezbollah knowingly to uh, sell drugs in the United States for fear of it blowing up the Iran deal. He spied on the incoming president and, for that matter, spied on the presidential campaign prior to Donald Trump being elected. Uh, Benghazi ring a bell, anybody? There were plenty of scandals that occurred during the Barack Obama presidency, and they will continue to tell you that it is scandal-free. Now, in fairness to Joe Biden, he probably forgot all this sort of stuff because he pretty much forgets everything, but he is going to be running for president. He is running for president. He is going to be the Democrat nominee, short of some sort of massive health issue between now and November. That said that he was the vice president for the scandal-free presidency of Barack Obama, which was anything but yet another example of Orwellian rewriting of history. And they will just continue to push these lies on you unless they go challenged. So I ask you all to at least absorb some of what I said to you over the course of the last 50 minutes and have that in your back pocket for when the leftists come for you. And make no mistake about it, no matter how into or out of this fight you think you are, 
they will come for you. They're not interested in whether or not you're involved heavily on the political end. As a matter of fact, they will tell you that your silence is violence. The narrative used to be that speech is violence, right? Anything that you said that disagreed with the narrative was hate speech and that that is violence. So now if you just sit it out and you don't speak at all, you are being silent, which is pretty much violence. It's almost as if everything is violence to the left, except for actual violence. When you know, when you're talking about the protesters and they're saying, oh, it's not violent. Meanwhile, there's a fire, like an inflamed building in the background of the shot. While, uh, while, while, was it Yasher Ali, I think from CNN, is doing a, he's, oh, it's mostly peaceful here. There is a burning building in his background. So violence isn't violence. Speech is violence. And silence is violence. I mean, if this isn't war is peace, uh, I don't know what is. I mean, this is right out of Orwell. This is right out of 1984. War is peace. And peace is war. And that's, that's where we're at right now, is that everything's violence except for the actual violence that they perpetuate. Everything is racist except for when they had a history of racism that continues to this day in a slightly different form. They'll just rewrite the history to make it look like that was the Republicans the entire time. Silence is violence, and violence is not violence, and speech is violence, but hands up, don't shoot is a real thing, even though it's quite clearly not when you see the actual incident. You could see the body cam footage. You could go watch it. This was anything but a hands-up-don't-shoot situation. As a matter of fact, his hands were not up, and the words don't shoot were never uttered. The party switch, the Confederate statues, the Camden police, the scandal-free presidency of Barack Obama, all of these are just kind of the tip of the iceberg ideas that are being perpetuated as fact when they couldn't be any farther from it. This is what Orwell warned us about, is a rewriting of history to fit a narrative that the party wants us to believe, and the party in this case is unfortunately the Democrats. Yes, there is a largely two-party system here in the United States. Yes, the Republicans run the Senate. Yes, a Republican sits in the White House right now. But when you take into consideration that government isn't nearly the whole of the power mechanism in this country, you've also got big tech entirely run by Democrats. You've got the entertainment industry, entirely run by Democrats. You've got academia, entirely run by Democrats. The little sliver that the Republicans do have control over is a very small sliver of the power that is being consumed and, and used in this country. And it is very unfortunate that all of those other wings seem to be in lockstep with one another because they've been able to just outright lie to you for as long as I've been alive and probably even longer. That said, I think I've done about all the ranting I could do this week. I hope this episode was worth a fuck for you guys out there, honestly, uh, as I was sitting down to do it. I'm looking at these notes, and I'm like, I don't know if I can rant about this for an hour, and sure enough, I did, but that's because I could pretty much rant about anything for an hour. Having said that, if you have anything you'd like me to rant about, feel free to email the show at therightopinionpod at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Twitter uh, at rightopinionpod. You can also find me on Parlor and on Instagram at rightopinionpod. But most importantly, find this fine podcast at therightopinion.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, hackerhameen.podbean.com, and ratsaladreview.com. And hopefully we can get the word out to some, to some people out there. Honestly, there's got to be somebody in your life who can't possibly understand why somebody could be a Trump supporter or be a Republican. I, I implore you to have them listen to the show just once. Let them know. They will be triggered. But hopefully, by the end of it, they can at least come out with a little bit of understanding as to why exactly 
there are people out there that support this president and that support the Republican Party. I'm not a huge fan of the Republican Party as a whole. Frankly, they're a bunch of spineless cowards more times than not. But at the very least, they tend to stand in the way of the leftists who are brazen in their stupidity and in and, and, and their hatred for the United States of America and its principles. And I truly believe that. I don't think I'm really making any I don't think I'm making any assumptions there. The way that the left attacks free speech and attacks gun rights and attacks anybody who disagrees with them. I put a tweet out the other day. The liberals love women until they disagree with them. See Kaylee McEnany, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, Nepotism Barbie, which is their new name for, uh, for, for Ivanka Trump. And then the left, they love black people until black people disagree with them. Take a look at Candace Owens. Take a look at Larry Elder. Take a look at the Hodge twins, any, virtually any of the voices I had in the previous episode here. And, and for that matter, the libs love the gay community too until they turn on them. See Dave Rubin, see Brendan Straka, the, uh, the leader of the Walk Away movement. And there's a lot of people out there that because they don't fit into the little boxes that the Democrats want them to fit into, they are considered persona non grata. And that's disgusting, regardless of their color, their gender, or their sexual orientation. I'm, I'm willing to have a discussion with anybody. Looking at you, Saxon, and uh, and 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 I look. I I don't believe these things because I want to believe them. I believe these things because I've done my research. I am well read on a lot of these subjects. I'm I watch a variety of people speak on these issues from a variety of the sides of the aisle. Because that's what you need to do. You need to know your enemy, and you need to know the facts. I tend to know both, or at least I tend to think I know both. And I hope, in some way, I'm fulfilling that for you people. Anyway, that is it for The Right Opinion this week. As always, I have to remind you that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, but this asshole has the right opinion right here on The Right Opinion Podcast. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Boom.